1: Well, happy Easter, I'm so glad that you are here today. Hope you got a worship guide when you came in. Grab that if you will. My name's Randy, I'm the campus pastor here and it's great to see so many of you, especially if it's your very first time to be with us. Our topic this weekend is the afterlife and all of us probably have some sort of uh, idea or some sort of made up thing even in our brain of what we think the afterlife is. And the problem so many times with things like that is we base our idea of the afterlife on maybe a movie that we've seen or maybe a TV show or a book that we've read or maybe something our parents told us. And too many times in our life we can make up things in our brain that, that don't actually become real or aren't actually true. I was thinking about that in the last couple of weeks and I thought about a story of my wife. She took our daughter when she was younger to Walmart. They walked into Walmart and they had gotten all the way inside before they realized we didn't get a buggy. And so my wife says to Kinsey, so go back to the front of the store and, and get a buggy. And Kinsey got this panicked look on her face. She, she said, I, I don't want to go back up there. And Sharon was like, no, just it's up there at the front where the Coke machines are. And there's that, uh, uh, that board there on the front with all the pictures on it. Just go back up there. And she said, no, I know. I, I, I don't want to go up there. And Sharon was like, it's really not that big a deal. Just just go back up there and get the buggy. And she just refused to do it. And so Sharon takes her back up there and she found out the reason she didn't want to go back up there was because of the pictures of all the kids on the board that had been kidnapped. And she thought in her brain that kids stand in front of that board and people come and kidnap them there and then take their picture and put it up there. And she had been believing in her brain that every time kids come into Walmart, if they stand in front of this board for too long, somebody will steal them and they put their picture up there. And she had believed this in her brain and thought that it was true and didn't want to go up to the front of Walmart because that was something she had believed in her mind, but it wasn't true. Also, when it comes to the afterlife, you have to be asking and answering the right questions. When my son was in uh, uh, about kindergarten, I was driving him to school one day and he's sitting in the back seat and he's got his pencil and his piece of paper and he's writing real intently. And he looks up and I, I'm, I'm driving and so I look into the rearview mirror and he says, Dad, I, I've got a question. And I said, Okay, bud, what's the question? He said, Dad, how does rain start? And I thought, man, he's a kindergartner and he's already thinking these scientific questions. And so I'd mustered up the best answer I could get. And I said, well, you know, the water evaporates from lakes and rivers and streams and all that. It goes up and it makes clouds and uh, just when the right atmospheric pressure, man, I'm I'm making stuff up. I'm trying to do the best that I can to tell him how rain starts. And so I do my best explanation of how rain starts. And I said, Cody, does that answer your question? And he said, no, what I want to know, does rain start with a capital R or a little R? And I was answering the wrong question and he wasn't asking what I was answering. You see, everybody wants to know about the afterlife. Everybody wants to know what's coming next. But here's the thing. Very few people want to talk about how you get there. Uh, If you are in a conversation with somebody and you wanna get out of that conversation, bring up the topic of death or dying and the conversation is almost always over. What happens when you take your last breath? What happens when your heart stops beating? What happens when the brave waves stopped waving? We've all asked those questions and maybe you even asked those questions when you were a little kid. I read a story about a guy who was at the beach with his family and his four-year-old grabbed his hand and he said, dad, come over and look at this. And he went over to the edge where the tide was coming in and there lay a seagull that was dead on the beach. And the four-year-old looked up at his dad and said, dad, what happened? He said, well, the seagull died and he went to heaven. And the little boy looked and he said, well, it looks like God threw him back because he's back down here with us. Now, all of us have different questions about the afterlife. Maybe you have recently lost a, a loved one and you've wondered, you know, what, what happens to them? Maybe you're wondering where they are. And you might have more questions than maybe you have answers when it comes to the afterlife. But maybe you're sitting here this morning and say, you know what, I don't even believe in the afterlife. I don't believe in that at all. That, that's okay. What I wanna do is I wanna take a few minutes and I wanna tell you a few things about the afterlife that are true of all of us. They're, they're on the back of your worship guide. Here's the first one that I believe is true about all of us. All humans have a desire to live on after death. Everybody has that desire. It's inside of you, it's inside of me to have the desire to want to live on after death. As a matter of fact, nobody wants death to just be the end. Nobody wants that to just be the the end and that's it. Everybody wants there to be something else. According to the Pew Research Center, 83% of Americans believe in some type of life after death. Those who call themselves Christians, 92% believe in a literal heaven. But, but here was the funny, almost funny part of the research to me. They found out that 26% of agnostics and 3% of atheists said they believe that there's a heaven. They don't know that there'll be a God there when they get there. They just think that, there's, that that's out there. But everybody has this desire to live on, for there to be something else. The Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes tells us this in chapter three, verse number 11. It says, he, speaking of God, has planted eternity in the human heart. So even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. I believe what this verse is teaching us is this, is that God has placed inside the heart of all human beings the desire to live on, to live for eternity, to live some place forever. Author and pastor Chip Ingram wrote a book entitled Why I Believe. And there's a chapter in this book But he talks about the afterlife and he says, this is why I believe in the afterlife. Now, he he lists a number of different reasons and I want us to look at a few of them this morning and none of them prove the afterlife. But one of the things that they do prove is that all of us have this desire from 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 years back, all of us have this desire to live on. He says, you can look at anthropology and anthropology is, is the study of aspects of humans within past and present societies. And he said, basically this, you can go back thousands of years and look at all of humanity, all of time, all religions, all backgrounds, and most all societies believe that death does not just end it, that death transitions into something else. Now, we might all believe that it transitions into something different, but, but everybody kind of believes that. And despite our differences, even in religion, we, we all basically believe the couple of things that biologically we all die and that there has to be some way to reconcile good and evil, to separate good and evil. You could go all the way back to, to ancient Egyptians, how uh, they would build the pyramids uh, uh, when, when loved ones would pass, or the Greeks would take coins and they would put them into the mouths of their loved ones, believing that it would assist them and aid them uh, in the afterlife, or maybe at some paradise level in Buddhism. But we all feel that there's this need to reconcile good and evil. You can also think about psychology. I'm talking about the, the feeling when it comes to psychology, the feeling that we all seem to have that, that there has to be something more. There, there has to be, if, if I could just have something more, maybe you fill in the blank what that something more is for you. Maybe you have said, you know, if I could just get that job, then I'd be happy. If we could just have kids, then I, I'd be happy. If I could get married, then I'd be happy. If we could have that house, if I could get a boat, if we could have the whatever, and you fill in the blank. Well, if you've lived long enough, you probably figured out that whatever that fill in the blank is thing, once you get it, you're really not happy. Now you just want something else. Once you've gotten that thing, now you want some other thing. And the reason is, is that nothing on this earth really truly satisfies. C.S. Lewis said it this way. So the reason that nothing in this world completely and fully satisfies is because we weren't made for this world. And so psychology tells us there's got to be something else. You can think about ethics. You have probably figured out by now that the world is not fair. You can just go ahead and agree with me and shake your head. The the world's not fair. You can look at people that do really bad things and they they live very immoral lives and it seems like good things happen to them. And then you can look at people that live great lives and very moral lives and and bad things happen to them. And you, you say, life's just not fair, There has to be somewhere in the afterlife for things to get leveled out. You can think about classic philosophy. Immanuel Kant said this. He said, if there's a good God and there's morality, then there has to be life after death for all of this to get worked out. You can also think about scientific research on near-death experiences. We heard one guy's story just a minute ago. And there's there's all kinds of books that have been written about near-death experiences. As a matter of fact, there's a near-death experience research foundation. And lots of people want to know. All of these things prove everybody wants to know what's coming next because we all have this desire to live on. Here's another thing that I, I, I know is probably true. It's this having a soul implies that there's an afterlife. Having a soul, the fact that you have a soul, the fact that I have a soul implies that there is an afterlife. You see, when you die physically, when your physical body dies, the soul, the real essence of who you are, lives on. And that because it lives on, it's got to live on somewhere. Now you might say, Randy, how do you know that you have a soul? Well, the Bible talks a great deal about the soul. As a matter of fact, more than 100 times in scripture, the soul is mentioned, Jesus mentions it in one very important time in Matthew 16, verse number 26. Look what Jesus said. He said, and what do you benefit? What, what good is it to you? What, what do you gain if you get the whole world, but you lose your own soul? What is it that thing that I said just a minute ago where you've always said, if I could just get this, if I could just have that? Jesus said, what good is it to you if you get the whole world, if you get everything, but you lose your soul. Then look what he says after that. He says, is anything worth more than the soul? So here's what Jesus is saying. Not only do you have a soul, the essence of who you are, but your soul lives on forever and there's nothing on this planet that's worth more than your soul. I love the way Scottish author George MacDonald put it. He said, you don't have a soul, you are a soul. You have soul. A body, and so your soul is the essence of who you are. It's the part of you that lives on after your body dies. Now, the Bible tells us that there are, are there are two things in this world that will last for all of eternity. Those two things are the Bible, God's word, and the souls of men. Now, that could, should be pretty sobering to us this morning to realize that every single person that's ever walked this planet is a soul, And those souls are still living somewhere and will last for all of eternity. They're in existence somewhere. And so the question that all of us ask then is, where, where are those souls? Well, here's another thing that I believe is true, especially when it comes to the afterlife. It's there number three on your notes. Jesus' own words and Jesus' resurrection prove that there's an afterlife. The words that Jesus spoke that we see in scripture and the fact that Jesus rose from the dead proved to me that there's an afterlife. For 40 days in a resurrected body with more than 500 eyewitnesses in 12 different locations, Jesus spent time telling men and women and assuring men and women that there is life after death. what I wanna do right now is I want us to look at one of the most common proof texts in all of scripture, about the afterlife. It's the words of Jesus. It's found uh, in in Luke chapter 23. And it's the story where Jesus is hanging on the cross and Jesus is on the cross. And there are two criminals on either side of him. Both of them are being crucified as well for uh, the, the wrong things that they have done. And we pick it up our reading in verse number 39. It says, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. So A criminal that's on this side of Jesus begins to hurl insults. He begins to curse at Jesus. He begins to mock Jesus. He begins to laugh at Jesus. And this is what he said. He said, uh, aren't you the Messiah? Are you really who you say you are? And then he questions him and says, if you really are the Messiah, why haven't you saved yourself and save us as well? Well, the guy on this side, the Bible says he rebuked him. And he says this to him, he says, man, don't you fear God? He says, since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man, he's speaking of Jesus now, he said, this guy has done nothing wrong. And then the guy on this side who's been defending Jesus, he makes this statement to Jesus while hanging on the cross. He says, Jesus, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And then notice what Jesus says in verse number 43. He said, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is a deathbed conversation between three men. It begins with one guy who is belittling and mocking and and cursing at Jesus. It continues with one guy over on this side who turns to Jesus and repents of his sin. And it concludes with Jesus pardoning this man, assuring him that there is an afterlife and assuring you and I that there is one as well. I want us to look at the individual words of verse number 43. If you got it there on your notes, I want you to look at it with me. We're going to pull out the different words that Jesus spoke to this man while hanging on the cross. The first four words that Jesus said were this. He said, truly, I tell you, Jesus began his message to the thief on the cross by assuring him that the words that he was speaking were the truth. You know, the, the criminal that day, he believed Jesus and he believed that what he had to say was true. And I believe that what Jesus had to say was true as well. Our world is full of liars. Those guys, I'm sure that were hanging on the cross on either side of Jesus were liars as well and had probably spent their life around liars, but they hung next to the one voice of truth that is in this world. The guy that so many times began his teachings in scripture with these words by saying, truly I say unto you, or I tell you the truth. And that's why you and I can base our view of the afterlife on every word that Jesus spoke because everything that Jesus said was true. So he said, truly I tell you, notice the next word, he said today, today. It, it's, it's not probable that when this guy next to Jesus asked for a pardon, it's not probable that he thought that his prayer would be answered so quickly. He probably thought that when he cried out to Jesus, that Jesus would die, come back to life in the future, set up his kingdom on earth. And then he was saying, hey, when you come back, will you remember me? But Jesus says, your prayer is going to be answered this very day, it's going to be answered today, implying that when this man died, immediately he was going to go into paradise with Jesus. Now, how does that work? People ask me all the time, uh, you know, Randy, how does, how does this whole death thing work? When somebody that I love dies, where do they go? I mean, what, what happens to them? How do they get there? Do they go to purgatory? Is there some... Holding place that they have to go until everything gets settled. Do they go instantly to heaven? Well, I'm convinced from the words of Jesus that when we die, our soul leaves our physical body and our soul immediately goes, if you've had a relationship with Jesus Christ, your soul immediately goes into the presence of God and you are fully conscious of where you are at that time of being in his presence. That certainly seems to be the opinion that the apostle Paul had in 2 Corinthians chapter five. He said, yes, we are fully confident and we would rather be away from these earthly bodies for then we will be, he says, at home with the Lord. So you say, "How, how do you base your belief on where we go after we die? Well, from the words of Jesus and from the teaching of the apostle Paul, when a person who is a believer in Jesus takes their last breath, their soul immediately goes into the presence of the Lord. Now that should be a comfort to many of you today. Those of you who have had loved ones that have gone on to heaven, gone on ahead of us to know that right now their soul is in the presence of God today. So Jesus said, truly I tell you today, notice the next two words. He says, you will. Jesus spoke specifically to him. He said, you, you will be in paradise This reminds us today that salvation is personal. It's a personal thing, it's a personal choice. Now, I I want you to hear me, I don't want you to miss this. Where you spend eternity, where your soul spends eternity, it has nothing to do with where you were born. It has nothing to do with who your parents are. It has nothing to do with how much money you have. It has nothing to do with what church you go to. It has nothing to do if you've been baptized, if you've been sprinkled, if you've been confirmed. It has nothing to do with any of that. Where you spend eternity is all dependent on what you do with one question. And that one question is this, what have you done with the free gift of salvation that Jesus offers to you? In this passage, we've got one guy on this side who's cursed Jesus and turned his back on Jesus. We've got another guy on this side who has turned to him and personally did four things. I want you to notice the things that this guy did on the cross. They're the same things that you and I need to do. Notice, first of all, he feared God. Look what he said in verse number 40. He said to the other criminal, he said, don't you fear God? If you and I are gonna have a personal relationship with Jesus, first of all, we've got to believe in God. We've got to believe that God is who he says he is. Notice what he also did. He admitted that he was a sinner. In verse 41, he said, we are getting what our deeds deserve. And if you and I are gonna have a relationship with Jesus, we gotta believe that God is who he says he is and we have to admit that we're a sinner. He also had faith in Jesus. In verse 41, he said, but this man has done nothing wrong. So you believe that God is who he says he is. You admit that you're a sinner. We've done things and we turn to Jesus. And then finally, he personally asked Jesus for salvation. In verse 42, he said, Jesus, remember me. It was personal. He had to ask Jesus for himself. Nobody could do that for him. Notice how the apostle Paul describes this in Romans chapter 10. He said this, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it's by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. Seven times in two verses, the apostle Paul uses the word you or your. He's showing us that salvation is personal. It's something that you must do for yourself. And Jesus speaks back to this man two very personal words when he says, you will. When I was 11 years old, I knelt down next to my bed with my mom and dad. And I prayed a very, very simple prayer. I said something like this. I said, dear God, I know that I'm a sinner. Please forgive me of my sin. Come into my life. I accept what Jesus did on the cross. Please save me. And I believe with all of my heart that as an 11 year old boy, God looked down into my bedroom and said, you will, you will. You will be with me. So Jesus said, truly, I tell you, today you will. Look at the next three words. He said, be with me. Be with me. One of the most excruciating experiences in all of life is to be left out or to be unwanted. Mother Teresa said, loneliness and the feeling of being unwanted is the most terrible poverty. Poverty. I have to believe that the thief on the cross knew the pain of rejection. The Bible tells us that he was both a criminal and a robber. He probably had very few friends. He'd probably been ostracized by most of the people he knew. I have to imagine that on that day as he hung on the cross, he didn't have any friends or family that were standing around that were proud of him. I have to imagine that in his eyes, he was probably shocked when the son of God looked over next to him and said, you will be with me. And I have to imagine that he thought to himself as terrible of a life that I have lived. I can't believe that he would want me, but he's accepting me. I venture to say that Jesus got this same reaction a lot during his interaction with people because Jesus said you and me to despise tax collectors. Jesus said you and me to prostitutes and adulterers and the lepers and to the blind, to the crippled, to religious people and to non-religious people. And precisely the heart of the gospel on Easter Sunday is that there is a God and he wants to be with you. Jesus said, truly I tell you, today you will be with me. Notice the last two words, in paradise, in paradise, now look up here at me, with, if, if you will, for just a second. It's the be with me statement. Please don't miss this. It's the be with me statement that gets you into paradise. That's the key. Jesus says you have to be with me if you're gonna get into paradise. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 14, Jesus said, if you want to see the Father, you have to go through me. I, I'm, the, I'm the key. I'm the key. Nobody gets into heaven, nobody gets there except through me. So Jesus said the be with me part is the key to getting into paradise. A few years ago, my dad was getting ready to celebrate his 70th birthday. My dad went to UT, he's a big Tennessee fan. And so I wanted to do something special for his 70th birthday. And so I I called a friend of mine who works at UT and I said, man, this is my dad's 70th birthday. I wanna do something really special for him. Can you help me out? And he said, man, I will, I, I, I'll hook you up. So this was a, a Tennessee, Georgia football game. It was a big deal. So we get there early for the game. We meet my friend outside the stadium and he's got on-field passes that he gives to us that we hang around our necks. We're so excited. And so as we go down this, start to go down a tunnel, there's some ladies sitting there at the desk and, and they're, they're checking us. And we just point to him and said, we're with him. He says, yep, they're with me. And so they just let us right on through. There's security that's waiting down the tunnel and they start to stop us. And my friend just points and says, they're with me. They move out of the way. We just kind of stick our chest out a little bit. Yep, we're with him, move out of the way. We get down to the field, Neo Stadium and there's security down there and they begin to stop us. And my friend just says, they're with me. And they move out of the way. And I said, yeah, move out of the way. they with, we're with him. At one point, my friend has to walk away and security begins to approach us. I said, "Whoa, whoa, 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 we're with him. We got to go and meet Coach Fulmer and the security let us in, why? Because we were with my friend. And he, listen, he was the key to go down on the field. He was the key to get past security. He was the key to get to go and meet Coach Fulmer. It all had to do with who we were with. I believe that one of these days, When I take my last breath on this earth and I get to heaven, I'm gonna meet Jesus. And I think Jesus, I have to imagine that Jesus will take me in and say, hey, you're gonna get to meet God the Father. I'm gonna say, awesome. And I imagine that he's gonna take me in and he's gonna say, this is Randy. He doesn't deserve to be here, but he's with me. He's with me. I invited him to be here. And because he accepted me, he's with me. Jesus is the key. Have you ever wondered what heaven is like? I have, I I think about it a lot. I wonder what's gonna be like. What are we gonna do there? Where is it? Will it be fun? What will we wear? What are we gonna eat? That's important to me. What are we gonna do when we get there, where we live? Will we recognize each other when we get to heaven? Will we hang out with angels when we get to talk to Jesus? Will our pets be there? We know cats won't be there, but maybe the rest of our pets will be there. What will it be like? I lost a few of you already. <laughs> the word that Jesus uses here for heaven is paradise. It's a very uncommon word used. As a matter of fact, it's only used three times in all of scripture. It's a Persian word that means garden, enclosure, or park. Only three times in scripture. This is the first time that we find it. Another time that you use, you you find this word, it's in the book of Revelation where John is describing his vision of heaven. And again, Jesus is the one that uses it in Revelation 2. He said, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The reference here to the tree in the paradise of God provides an important clue for us about heaven. Paradise is just not some garden or enclosure. It's a sinless, weedless, painless garden, much like the garden of Eden that we see described in the first pages of our Bible. And this is the place that Jesus promised to this guy next to him on the cross. Let me close this morning with this. Let me share with you very quickly three things that you and I have in common with this guy that hung on the cross next to Jesus. Here's the first one. The first thing we have in common is that we're all guilty. We're all guilty. Some of you right now are saying, you know what? I didn't come to your Easter service for you to tell me I was guilty of anything. I want you to encourage me. We're all guilty. Romans three twenty three tells us that we've all sinned and we've fallen short of the glory of God. And so we're all guilty. And just like that guy that hung on the cross who admitted that he was a sinner, you and I are all guilty of sin. Another thing we have in common is that we're all dying. Our physical body is dying. Your body is dying. My body is dying. We're all marching towards death. And so is this guy. As a matter of fact, we see in 2 Corinthians chapter four, that's why we never give up, though our bodies are dying. We're all dying. But we've all sinned and we're all dying, just like the criminal on the cross. But another thing we have in common is that we all have a choice. You have a choice and I have a choice. And that choice is I have to decide what I'm going to do with this guy, Jesus. Jesus. Am I gonna be like this guy on this side and say, no, I, I don't want anything to do with you? Or am I gonna be like this guy on this side and say, Jesus, would you remember me? Have you ever been at the airport and maybe you're sitting at your gate and you're waiting for your plane to board and you got your ticket in your hand and you're looking around and you notice that there's a little screen above where they board the plane, a, a little monitor. And it has the words standby list on it. Well, the standby list are people that fall into several categories. It could be people that maybe work for the airline and so they don't have a ticket. They're just, they work for the airline and so they're hoping to, to go someplace on your plane. It's possibly people that got bumped off of another flight or people that showed up late and they missed their flight. But, but basically everybody on the standby list are people that don't have a physical ticket, Okay. They, they just don't have a ticket, they're hoping to get a seat. And I've sat many times at uh, the gate and I've watched these people that are on standby. And you can see the, the stress on their face, you can see the stress in their eyes because they really wanna get on that plane and they really wanna go to the same place that you're going but they don't have a ticket. And they pacing back and forth and they're texting somebody that's wherever that is and they're saying, I hope that I make it on this plane and they'll go back and forth up to the gate and they'll say, is there any news yet? Are there any empty seats? I wanna get on this plane. Now, all the while, the rest of us, we got a ticket. Whether we got a paper ticket in our hand or whether we got it on our phone, we, we got a ticket. Because we've taken the time to make a reservation and we've got a seat. And we're not stressed at all. We don't care. We're scrolling through our phone. We're eating a giant Cinnabon. We're just waiting for them to load the plane. Because we know as soon as they open the door, we got a ticket and we can get on. All the while the other people are stressed. Do you know there's a lot of people in life, when it comes to the afterlife, they're trying to fly standby. And they're just hoping they're just praying that, that, that they can make it. And they just hope when it all, all settles out that they'll get a seat. I can't tell you how many people have said to me over the years, well, pastor, I hope the good Lord lets me in. I hope the, the, the big man up in heaven sees all the good that I've done and I hope that I get in. I just don't know, I've tried to live a good life, but I hope when it's time for me to go that the good Lord punches my ticket. Can I tell you? The Bible tells you you don't have to hope. You don't have to wish. You don't have to wring your hands and hope that when your time comes that you'll get a ticket. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you'll be saved. You get your ticket punch. You get to know that eternity will be with you in heaven. Becoming a Christian, becoming a follower of Jesus is simple. It's as simple as A, B, C. You admit that you're a sinner. You believe that God is who he says he is and then you confess that with your mouth. I wanna give you the opportunity to do that right now. So would you bow your heads and would you close your eyes for just a second? Nobody's looking around the room. I wanna invite you to pray a very simple prayer similar to what I prayed all the way back when I was 11 years old. You don't have to pray the exact same words as me. As a matter of fact, I'd prefer that you not. I'd prefer that you just pray in your own words. You can pray quietly in your heart, but pray something like this. Dear heavenly father, I know I'm a sinner. Please forgive me of my sin. I accept right now your free gift of salvation. Thank you for dying in my place. Please come into my life. Change me. From this day forward, I choose to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Well, I hope this was helpful to you. If while listening, you realized you need to take the next step in your relationship with Jesus, we would love to help you with that. You can connect with us by clicking the link in the show notes to our website and then clicking the connect card button. In our weekend worship services, we are in a sermon series called The Seven Commands of Christ. Jesus gave dozens of commands, and as followers of Jesus, we should obey all of them. Over the next several weeks, we are focusing on seven that will change your life. We would love for you to join each week at one of our campuses, or you can attend online. You will find service times by clicking the link in the show notes to our website.